good day, everyone. My name is Gary Harvat. I'm from the QuickMed Claims Client Services team, and I'd like to welcome you to today's presentation. We're doing a HIPAA update today, and it's subtitled, Are You Gambling with Your Organization's Financial Well-Being? Uh, I'm really excited for this presentation today. I think we have a great program in store for you with a great speaker. First, many thanks to all our clients attending. We have clients from, oh, it looks to be about 18 different states. And I'd also like to extend a special welcome to our uh clients from our partner organization, Ninth Brain, who are joining us. Welcome to you. We're glad to have you, and please take part in our future webinars. It's always a pleasure. Today's program is uh, a HIPAA update. Are you gambling with your organization's financial well-being? Now, if you've seen the news lately, you can see, you've probably heard that uh, there have, was a HIPAA breach with an emergency medical service who was fined as a result of that breach. Uh, that day has, has come, and we all must be careful moving forward. Uh, surely, we hope everybody's been careful up to this point, but even more so now, because of course, emergency medical services are even more under the microscope. So we're hoping today's presentation will provide you with some great tips, some guidance, be informative, and even thought-provoking along the way. Joining us today is Mary Craig. Mary is our Chief Compliance Officer at QuickMed Claims. She is a wealth of knowledge in this subject matter. She comes to us with a background in compliance, and I hope you'll find today's presentation helpful. We love Mary here. She's a great person, and we hope you'll enjoy her as well. So without any further ado, I'll turn today's presentation over to Mary. So Mary, thanks for joining us today. We're glad to have you. The program's all yours. Thanks, Gary. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm so excited to be here today. And as Gary had mentioned, I hope as we go through the presentation today, there'll be something maybe new that you didn't know about, or maybe a refresher for something that you may have forgotten about, or something totally new. So we'll get started because we've got an awful lot to cover. If you notice the agenda, I have a, a number of different things shown here, and we're going to cover each of these items as we go through. And what I'm also going to do as we proceed is I will be sharing little snippets and little stories of things uh, to more or less bring some of these messages home and to also let you know what has happened in real life and in real situations. So again, hope you sit back and relax and um, take away something good from this presentation today. So do you know the numbers? Do you know what happens every two seconds? And I found this information from an article by a young lady, Jennifer Bellamar, who works for Identity Force. And that's the organization that really talks about life lock and preventing uh, any type of uh, risk to your information. But every two seconds, somebody is a new victim of identity theft. I think that is an amazing and frightening statistic. So I like to do a little brain teaser with everybody to see if you really know the numbers. So you see up on the screen, I have three different amounts, 25 cents, a dollar, and $50. And then on the other side of the screen, I have three different items. So take a moment and look at these and think what amount connects to which of those items. And this information also is credited to MedID Med fraud, and this is only information from 2018. So it might be a little bit higher. 
All right, so we're ready to look at the answers. So did you get that first one right? Social security number worth 25 cents. How many of us have often thought about the importance of protecting that social security number, which I still want you to do. I don't want you to leave the presentation today thinking, oh, I don't have to care about that so much. You still do, but that's not really what the hackers and the really bad guys are after. So what are they after next? The credit card number. How many of you maybe use your credit card and then you pay your, your invoice at the end of the month and you really don't look at the charges? That's what they're banking on. They might put through a couple little charges and then if they notice that no one really questions it, that's when they'll hit with a larger expense or a larger charge. But maybe the biggest eye-opener is that the electronic health record is really the record, the information that they want to obtain. And why do you think they want to do that? There is so much information in an electronic health record. If you stop to think about that has demographic information in it, so the person's birth date, their address, maybe information about their income, it has information about their health insurance. So if they wanted to bill fraudulent claims, they've got that information. They have access to diagnosis codes. A lot of damage can be done once they get access to an electronic health record. So for me, this was something surprising. So hope for, for at least some of you that that was uh, something new as well. So I also wanted to talk for a moment about the emotional impact that happens if a person is the victim of identity theft. And if you look at this slide and you see all the different um, feelings and frustration levels that a person can feel and that they're powerless, they feel betrayed, their information that they trusted that vendor or perhaps that client, they trusted that individual to protect their information and somehow that information was stolen or misplaced or, or not protected enough. And I'll share a personal story at a prior organization that I worked with. I, it was payday and my, my deposit did not go in. And at first I thought, okay, there's probably a problem with the transmission with the bank and so on. So I contacted our payroll office and I got a call back in a short period of time. And they said, well, Mary, didn't you change your banking information and ask us to redirect your money? Well, that was a resounding no. Uh, so that started me on the journey of, oh my goodness, what happened and how can we get this fixed and what other risk maybe do I have? And what had occurred is someone posing as myself had sent in a couple emails to our payroll office and asking that the money be redirected to a new banking account. But there were a couple red flags that our, our employees had not caught. One was that that email came from a very unusual email address. It did not come from within our company. The second thing is this individual asked questions like, how soon can I have this deposit changed? How much am I going to get paid and when will I get paid? Well, I don't know about you, but I certainly know how much I get paid and, and when I'm getting paid. So I was a little bit taken aback that nothing caused them to stop and come down. I literally was three doors away from our payroll office and just stop in and see me or shoot me an email and just question it before they went ahead and made that transaction. 
But what was even more uh, fortunate, I guess, about this is that the person that was trying to redirect the money actually was out in California. So we had a three hour timeline. So they were actually able to stop the transmission before it got put into this false bank account. But what also happened as a result of this is I had to file a police report. I had to put freezes on my credit ratings. And you know, if you've ever done that and then you want to make a large purchase, then you have to go through all of these steps to take those freezes off and validate who you are. So while it's a great safety mechanism, it also causes you to have a lot of extra work and a lot of paperwork. And then you start to feel a little bit safe again, but you never know when it can happen. So, you know, when I look at this chart and all the different things listed, I can tell you I felt every single one of them. So I hope you're never in that situation, but if you are or a family member is, or again, if maybe you or someone that works for you has been careless with information, know that that emotional impact is something that you will have to deal with in addition to maybe a financial impact. So moving on, did we have any questions so far yet? None yet, Mary. Okay, then we'll just keep on moving through. What we hope you'll take away from today's presentation is you're, you're a healthcare consumer and you're an employee that works in healthcare. So we want you to better understand the value of that information that you will come in touch with each and every day, whether it's your own information or the information of the people that you're taking care of or that you're providing care to. So these are the leading causes of medical identity theft. And I think most people are, are pretty familiar with the first two, that something is lost or stolen, there's an employee that perhaps makes an error, but you might not be aware of the second two, third-party error and Robinhood fraud. So I'm just gonna take a few moments to talk about those and, and give you a little bit of information about those two. So what the heck is third-party error? It really is when an external company or vendor makes a mistake, or maybe they share information that they shouldn't. And again, you might be thinking, okay, I still don't understand what that is. Let's say someone sends your information to a different client or a wrong address and that information is not returned or it's faxed to a wrong number. If you think about the world that we live in in healthcare, so many of the times we're dealing with hospitals, doctors, insurance carriers, and we're all under that HIPAA umbrella, right? We all go through training, we all know what we're supposed to do, but sometimes something happens and it gets sent to someone that maybe doesn't have that responsibility or that background. And I'll give you an example. When I worked at another organization, we had someone that had faxed, I think it was 10 or 12 different sheets of paper around 10 or 12 different patients and instead of faxing it over to a health insurer um, health insurer who was going to do an audit on some claims they actually ended up faxing it to an incorrect number and it ended up being an auto body shop so fortunately for us the auto body shop called us and said um you know, you just sent me all this information about all of these people. 
So we were very lucky when that occurred that that person notified us. We realized the risk of harm wasn't very low and they agreed to shred that information. But sometimes the third party will get it and think, hey, I can, I can do something with this information. I can open a credit card. I can file a false claim. Um, I can sell it to someone else. So that's when a third party error can, can occur. And then you think about the fourth category, which is Robinhood fraud. And this is really a fancy name for when someone gives their information to someone else in order to receive care or services. And I like to think of this as the situation where someone plays on the heartstrings of another person most of the time. And that's, let's say, a friend that you know has just lost their job and they need to have a test done to find out whether or not they, they have a, a condition and they're worried about it, you're worried about it, you wanna help them out. They're like, I lost my insurance when I lost my job, if I could just go and have this, this test done. So the kind-hearted person says, well, I have insurance and I can give you my card and you can go. And, and I'm sure now you know why so many providers will ask for photo IDs now because you know this does happen. And most of the time, the person that gives that other person their health insurance information to use, they don't recognize that it's really fraud, right? It really is. But the second piece that happens, they start with this Robin Hood intention, this good intention, I'm going to help this person and they'll have peace of mind and you know they won't have to worry any longer and it's only one or two tests and what harm can that be? but you're also in the medical provider field. So you also know that what has now happened is that person's medical record now is going to have information in it that really doesn't apply to them. What if that test shows that they're a diabetic and now you show up on the scene to render care and the medical record that you have access to shows that this is a diabetic patient. So you start your whole treatment plan based on, okay, this is a diabetic when that person may not have that condition at all. So that's the fourth type of how, how sometimes this can happen. So any questions on that? Yes, Mary, actually we did have one question come in from the great and I'm betting warm state of Florida this afternoon. So I have to go there live to answer this one. Yeah, as, it's, as the snow flies outside our Pittsburgh window here, that's right. So, uh, this question, and you may cover this down the road, but for right now, they asked the question, um, are computers at our ambulance base run 24 seven? Is this per, is this permissible as far as a compliance standpoint? And should we shut them down after each person law, uh, uses the trip report? That's a great question. And I don't know your operations, if, if that needs to be up and available 24 hours for the emergency transports, but I will tell you that each individual should have their own sign on and log in so that that information can be tracked and audited as to who is in that account or in that record. And anytime someone steps away from a system or a computer and that screen is left up, they are placing that information at risk. So the regulation really talks, and we're, we are going to get into some of the system um, tips and checklists. It really is control, alt, delete, shut down that screen when you're not there, 
Each person should have their own sign on and login. Um, are you checking those passwords and changing them timely? There's a whole lot that really needs to be considered. Thank you, Mary. I'm sure there'll be more questions forthcoming. They're just a little shy. Okay, well, we have a lot more to cover. So if you don't have a question yet, as we proceed, um, maybe something new will spark your interest. So here are the main risk areas when we talk about HIPAA. So now we're really getting into the down and dirty uh, pieces of the rules and the regulations. So you see up on the screen, we talk about systems, paper documents, verbal discussions, and then physical privacy and security. And I want to call your attention at the bottom of the screen, you'll see that I have this big warning up in a gold block that says a recordable breach can occur if policies and safeguards aren't followed. So to that caller's question before, you know, you leave that screen up and available, you're not following the policy and the safeguards. Um, and the impact, whether it's one person or a thousand or more, it really doesn't matter. A fine and a penalty can be assessed by Health and Human Services, HHS, or OCR, which is the Office of Civil Rights. So just, you know, to kind of put some flavor to this, think about a verbal discussion. Well, how much harm could there be if somebody overheard something or possibly someone shared something verbally with someone else? Well, this is one of my all-time favorite examples that I use in my trainings. And in a verbal discussion, there was a situation where there was a pharmacist and the ex-girlfriend came into the pharmacy to get a prescription filled. So there's this little love triangle going on. And when the individual leaves, the pharmacist proceeds to call the boyfriend and say, your ex was just in here. You will not believe what prescription they have her on now and proceeded to have a nice conversation with her current boyfriend about his ex-girlfriend. Well, what happened is somebody also happened to be in the waiting room and overheard this conversation and was so appalled that this happened. They did not go to the pharmacy to complain. They did not go to the manager to complain. Instead, they filed a formal complaint with HHS. Now, anyone can do that at any time. So it, you might not be aware of that either. As a healthcare consumer, you can file a formal complaint with HHS. And that is what that person did. Now, as you can imagine, Health and Human Services is for the entire United States. So they receive a lot of information that comes in. So it was months before they sent a formal letter out to this pharmacy and said, here is the allegation and the complaint. And you know, it provided names and times and, and what was overheard. Now tell us your side of the story. So they proceeded to start their investigation and the pharmacist was still there. And when they interviewed the individual, she did recall the situation and she said, yes, I did do it. I don't like her. And um, I know it was wrong, I shouldn't have done it. And they confirmed she had attended training. She admitted she knew it was wrong. So as the conclusion of their investigation, they did terminate her employment. So they sent their response back to HHS advising all of the things that 
they validated that that was a true complaint and what they had done and they felt that was sufficient. After HHS looked at the answer, they came back and they said, well, thank you very much. You know, that, that was a good report. But you might be surprised to know what the fine was, the penalty and the fine. Would you imagine that because of this one situation, they would be fined $1.44 million? Now, that to me was, and of course, the pharmacy chain said, this is absolutely ridiculous. There is no way we should be held accountable for what a rogue employee did who admitted she knew it was wrong, admitted she knew she had attended training. So we really want to appeal this decision. So they sent that information back and HHS said, well, thank you very much. And in light of all of this information that you've provided to us, here's your new fine. Now, some people would think, well, that new fine might be $50,000, it might be 100,000. Maybe it's, maybe they decided no fine. But what they really decided was, too bad, so sad, pay up $1.44 million. But what they said is, but we do hear you. How unfortunate that this would be caused by a rogue employee. We think we need to change the law. We think now that we will be able to also come after the individual who willingly and willfully does this. So their fine was still $1.44 million. So I, again, think that is just an enormous amount of money for a verbal discussion about one patient. So if we move on, I also wanted to just touch upon access to records because this can be a tricky area as well. So we start with saying your records are protected by HIPAA. You as a healthcare consumer have all of these rights, the same as the rights that you follow for the patients that you treat and you transport. Know that your family's records are also protected by HIPAA, meaning that that you don't have extra rights to look at your family records because you work for a healthcare um, organization. Still have to follow an authorization process, are you the legal guardian, all of that same thing applies. And you don't have the right to access a record just because you work in healthcare. And something that occurred at a prior organization that I worked for was we had an individual who had a special needs child, and that child was receiving care at a specialist's office. And they got a call while they were at work from the specialist's office saying, hey, we need a little bit of information. We need some vaccination dates for your, um, for your child. And, and our employee at the time said, oh, no problem. She accessed the records, got the um, dates for the vaccinations, and provided that on to the specialist. Now, she's the mom of this minor child, but she had no right to go into our medical record or her child's record to obtain that information just because she worked there. Her child had the same rights as any other person the process and the procedure. We had forms, she could have just filled out the form, we would have had a record of it, that would have been okay, 
accessing the record because it was already then approved, but she didn't follow that. And again, she was in mom mode. She was trying to get this information and, and supply to the specialist. But when we talked with her as well, and we talked about, well, how else do you think you could have obtained that information? She could have just as easily called the pediatrician and gotten that information and provided it or had the specialist call the um, pediatrician's office. So again, sometimes you're in that moment and you might forget and you might jeopardize the risk by accessing a record that you really shouldn't. You don't have an extra right to be in that record just because you have access to it. And then the other thing is confidential information must also be protected. And sometimes people may not realize confidential information, things such as maybe there's information about an employee's salary or information about um, you know, a business uh, opportunity that maybe the organization is going to pursue. That is confidential information that must also be protected. So, working in healthcare, have you ever looked up somebody's records because you worked at that company and they transported the patient? So your neighbor said, hey, I know you work for ABC Ambulance Service and you picked up my neighbor. Check it out. Tell me, you know, why he was um, transported. What, what's the news? Or again, maybe you saw a story in the news and you got curious. You said, hey, I wonder what's going on with that. For any of you Pittsburgh local people, you might have remembered Ben Roethlisberger. Of course, for those of you not in Pittsburgh, he's our uh, Steeler quarterback. And a few years ago, he was in a terrible motorcycle accident and he was injured and taken to one of our local hospitals. And what happened is that made huge headlines that Ben had been injured and oh my goodness, what was gonna happen and what was the extent of his injuries. And what happened is many people accessed his record because they worked at the hospital but they had no, no real business reason to be in it other than their curiosity. And several people lost their jobs over that. So again, sometimes we can be tempted because we know we can get access and get into that record. It comes down to don't be curious because if you're curious, whether it's start to worry about your coworker and you think, oh, I'll just check on that and look that up. Maybe a friend of yours, all of a sudden you realize that they've had some care and you can access the record. Your neighbor, your relative, or again, your own record. You do not have extra rights to look at your own record just because you work in healthcare and maybe can access it. So my message to you is don't do it. <laughs> simply don't do it if you get curious or someone saying hey I know you work there can you check it out what most organizations if you don't have it in place already you really need to have an audit trail of when people are in the records and why they're in the records um, the dates and times because that is something that's also required under HIPAA so we say if you don't have a business reason and that means treatment payment operations to be in that record you are violating HIPAA and again some people don't realize that any questions yet yes Mary actually we have two this time around so uh, staying with the warmer temperatures here this one's from Arizona uh, it it asks is um, and I'm trying to make sure I get the question right here is it a best practice 
to have all existing employees acknowledge our privacy policy annually or as once enough as they are hired? I will tell you my thoughts on it. Best practice is to do an annual sign off and attestation. Who among us remembers what we learned on day one or two in orientation, right? There should be annual training and refreshers. And I really am a big proponent of reminding people of their obligations and also gives them an opportunity if maybe in the meantime, you know, something's occurred and they have a question that they, they can ask for guidance. Um, so I'm a big proponent of that. Okay, great. Thanks. Good answer. I appreciate that. Also, let's, uh, let's head north. We're here in our home state of Pennsylvania, Mary. Uh, how much legal recourse does an organization have when they, when they are fined? Are they able to appeal? Can they have a jury trial, et cetera? Oh, I don't know about the jury trial um, piece. That's a little bit out of my realm of expertise. Maybe we can research that piece. But I can tell you that you do have the right to appeal However, um, with the HIPAA violations, it's, it's pretty black and white. It is, you know, the one I mentioned with the verbal discussion, even though they had shown they had trained that person, she admitted what she did, and she admitted that she knew she shouldn't have done it, um, they still had a $1.44 million fine. Um, other areas not tied to HIPAA, you do have opportunities to appeal fines and penalties. And part of that will rest with if you have what is called an effective compliance program. And that's almost an entire other webinar, but to give you an idea, there are seven basic elements of a compliance program, such as auditing, training, the code of conduct, policies, do you have a compliance officer? And among all of those, you have layers uh, within those. So in order to negotiate a fine on something else, you have to provide evidence that your program just isn't in paper format and it sits on a shelf or it sits on the computer, but that it's a living, breathing document that people embrace and understand and know how to access it. And, and as you can see, I could do another webinar on that. <laughs> Very easily. Did that answer the question enough? I think so, Mary. Uh, I, I'll let you know if I get a follow-up. Okay, thank you. So moving along, one thing that Gary and I talked about was we wanted to provide a checklist um, on those main categories, on systems, on verbal, on paper, and so on, that maybe you can take away from today's presentation. We'll go over it, but you, know, you can use a few of these screens and do your own little spot checks. So the first thing that you're gonna to see tied to system is just as simple as the computer screens. Are they closed down and locked when the person steps away? If you step away from your computer or your employees step away and they leave information up there, that is a tremendous risk. And that is something that I can tell you, um, you everyone does it once in a while. Like you forget you're running off maybe to uh, go to the restroom or you get pulled away for something. But when you come back and you see that, I hope that most people when that happens, they go, oh my goodness, okay, shouldn't, you know, forgot to do that versus the person that becomes so um, 
comfortable in doing it thinking, oh, what's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. You leave that up and now someone can send an email to anybody um, and it looks as though it came from you. And now you have to defend, oh, I didn't really send that, but I left my screen up. So always be sure that it's as simple as the control alt and delete key. Um, always get in a habit of doing that. And are your screens positioned so they're not viewable? So if you have certain desk areas that are in high traffic areas, you really want to be sure that the monitor is positioned away so that people really can't just look at what is up on the screen. And if that's not really possible, let's say because of the layout of your office or, or your business, you can buy screen filters that just simply fit over the monitor. And if you're looking straight at your monitor, you can't even tell that's on there. But from any other angle, not looking straight, it distorts the view so people cannot see what's on your screen. They're very inexpensive. So again, you know, that's a good recommendation. If you have some that, you know, they need to be positioned where they are, but then invest in those small screen filters. That it's just like a screen that you put in your window almost at home, but it fits over your monitor. So let's talk about logins and passwords. Here's a risk area. Walk around and, and check out your, your, your laptops and your computers. Do people leave their passwords and logins taped to the front of their computer or great hiding place? They'll put it underneath the keyboard. Well, that's not a good thing. Really, people need to remember them or put them out of sight, out of mind. Don't leave them where anyone can see them. And are they sharing them among employees? This really is a strong recommendation that everyone have their own, but there have been occasions where uh, there are people that maybe work on a particular shift or a particular product. Um, for example, at a one prior employer, we had certain rehab employees and because they worked different shifts and carried over they had shared logins and passwords but we created a mechanism that we could track what shift who who that belonged to and so on so we had a tiny um, allowance as to why we were doing that with only a few employees so that we could defend it if we ever had to if you have any ability not to share, that is the recommendation. And then your passwords, are they strong? You know, or is it, you know, people say um, they use a, a common one, maybe they use their dog's name all the time, or they use, you know, um, the welcome one is a, a popular one. That is not a good password. It should be something that it would be really hard to guess. And, you know, the, um, the recommendation is always have a mix of something. So whether it's letters and numbers and maybe those special characters or a phrase that will help you remember it. Um, but you know, really people need to think about those passwords because it unlocks a lot of information. And then are they periodically changed? There are some organizations that once you put in your password, they'll send you a reminder, but you don't have to change it but the recommendation is they really should be changed. Um, and most companies do it in around a 60 day uh, timeframe. So just something to think about. And then are you using dual authentication? And this, people may say, I'm really not even sure what that is. 
but as you now, as a healthcare consumer, maybe uh, get enrolled, say, in a wellness program, or uh, you have the ability to check your records online with your health insurer or your life insurance carrier, you may have noticed more recently organizations asking you to log in but answer multiple questions, multiple security questions, or multiple passwords before you are in the system, that's what dual authentication is, making it a little bit harder for someone to get into the system if they shouldn't be in there. So also talking about devices, are they encrypted? Very, very important. I think in the past, the gold standard used to be, well, as long as you have things password protected, um, you don't really have to be too worried about things. Um, if you send things, um, maybe uh, you send out a, a Word document file or an Excel spreadsheet, and then you send the password in a different email or whatever, that's pretty good. That really is no longer considered acceptable. Things really should be encrypted. And then if someone does lose maybe their phone or their laptop, do you have the ability to disable that or wipe it clean if it would be lost or even stolen? Those are all things that are really recommended that there is a process where you can remove that PHI or that confidential information off that device. And then again, we've talked about dual authentication. I just have it repeated there. And then access to systems. It really should be that people only have access to the systems that they really need to use and deactivating them timely when staff leave. I think organizations have gotten a lot better with that. You know, when someone leaves an organization that that access is shut down pretty quickly. But one thing that we do still see as a risk for most companies is that they forget when people are changing positions that maybe they don't need access to certain uh, programs any longer or certain information, and they forget to take that access level off. So a way to um, combat that is periodically, they recommend every year, every two years, that companies really go back to the individual employee and or their supervisor and say, this is what you have access to. Do you still need this access? And then have them sign off because that protects you as an organization. If later, you know, you are audited by HIPAA or HHS or someone and they come in and say, well, how do you know? Then you could produce that document saying, look, we gave them this list. They just signed off on it two months ago that yes, they still needed that access and that was validated. Do you give access to your systems before the business associate agreement is fully executed? That means not only do you sign someone at your organization, usually it's the president or maybe the privacy officer or compliance officer signing, but also that other entity, and you both know that both organizations have signed off, now it's okay to share information. If only one signs off and you think, oh, they're gonna sign it next week. If you share information before it's fully executed, you can face a fine for doing that. And again, sometimes people have not realized that. They assume it will be signed and it's in good faith and we can move forward, but do not until you are certain that both parties have signed that agreement and dated it. 
paper documents. Again, I think because as a, as a world, we are moving more to electronic records and so on. And people say, well, we don't have a lot of paper. You will be surprised at how much paper you probably still do have. So if you have paper documents, are they left out in plain view or are they filed? Are they turned over? Are you taking a step to minimize risk that someone would see something that they shouldn't see? We had a problem at one of my uh, prior organizations where people were leaving things on windowsills face up. And, you know, people can see that from outside. And I had my employees say, Mary, really, who's going to see it? I'm like, okay, well, we have window washers. We have maintenance people out there. And I, I think you'll feel differently, too, if that were your information, your social security number, your date of birth, your diagnosis sitting on a window seal. Do you feel a little bit differently? Do you feel that, okay, maybe I should turn that over or file it? And most people say, yeah, I, I would feel better that it would be protected. So these are risk areas to take a look at. You might be surprised at, at what you might have available. Are you shredding the, the documents when you don't need them any longer? Again, very important. Are you retaining paper documents longer than you need to? If you have a document that you don't need to have any longer, maybe you've scanned it, or maybe it's beyond the 10-year record retention for a certain item. You only have to keep it 10 years, but you've now kept it 13 years. If there is a legal case and it is tied to that case or document, even though it's beyond the retention time, if you still have it in your possession, you must provide that to the legal entity that's requesting it. So there's a lot of risk when you have paper longer than you need to retain it. And are employees aware that papers that have confidential information have to be protected as much as those with PHI? Maybe you have HR records and you have information on worker comp records. Those are confidential statements and you need to protect them just as much as you protect anything that has PHI on it. And one more quick, quick story on this. At one of my organizations, I had an employee come in and she had found a whole lot of papers out in our parking lot that had a lot of confidential information on them and some of them had PHI information on them and they were blowing around our parking lot. So we started to take a look at them and initially we felt very good because they weren't our documents. We're like, oh, this is awesome. But we have a responsibility. We could identify who they really did belong to and it was puzzling because the organization was across the city. And we're like, how did these get over here? Well, what happened is they had an employee that um, was charged with getting rid of older files. And the shred bin happened to be full at their organization. So this person thought, no problem. I'll just take them in closer to my home and I'll throw them in um, the dumpster that sits outside this building. So that's what they did. But what happened is it was a windy day and some of those things blew out and we found them. Um, and again, we had an obligation to report it and then they had the obligation to investigate it. And that's how they found um, what actually had happened and why those papers were released. So you talk about shredding. And I think sometimes we have this sense if we have large containers in the workplace and we have a company comes in and picks them up and shreds it and we're all good to go. Well, here are a couple of things to think about. Your container should be locked. 
If you're not locking them, you really need to do that and you know who has the keys. So that's another thing that, you know, they can come in and audit you against. Do you keep a log of when that company comes in and empties those large bins? And now, you know, there are companies that will shred those documents right out in the parking lot um, within their truck. So there are a lot of um, opportunities that you can, um, you know, contract with that, or if they take the information, you need to be sure that they do indeed shred and destroy it. You ever seen where your shred containers are sitting there and they are so overstuffed because several people decided to go through their files at the same time, and now papers are sticking out in the um, area where you put the papers in because the bin is so full? You can be charged for that. You have to be certain that if you have one that is too full, you should be covering up that um, slot with a sheet saying, find another shred bin until this is locked, or I'm sorry, emptied. Do you have a procedure if somebody puts a paper in there and then says, oh my goodness, you know, when I put this in, I forgot I also stuck something else in there that I need to get out. That happens, that's, you know, part of, part of our work day sometimes. But you really need to have a procedure that someone is there observing what they're taking out and documenting, okay, they took out, you know, maybe they stuck their paste up in there by mistake or something. Um, but don't just give, here's the keys, go ahead and get out what, what it is that you put in there by mistake. Because if that's ever reported, you have to defend yourself and you won't know, did they take something else or is there a potential allegation that they did take something else? If you use the small personal ones because you think I really don't have an awful lot of shredding in our office, just be sure, you know, older equipment does not shred the way the new uh, shredders do. The sh new shredders cross shred and really make it very tiny. But if you see sections and they're still readable, that is a problem that can be taped and put back together. And as much as you think that won't happen, there have been cases where that has happened and organizations have gotten in trouble. So, and also, are you being sure that those shredded papers are being disposed of in a very secure manner? So just things to think about. Any questions on any of that? Yes, Mary, a couple more came in. So uh, these are pretty much along the line of being the same, but we'll, we'll still pose both to cover all around here. So the first one deals with the notice of privacy practices that typically uh, emergency medical service personnel provide patients at the residence or scene, wherever they might be. Um, and one, the question, uh, this one is actually from Connecticut. Uh, the question is, what happens if we forget to provide these at the scene? Can we mail it to the patient later or how should it be handled? If you forget to provide it, it is in your best interest to contact them and send it to them. Um, many times, because this has been around for a long time now, patients will say, oh, I don't really need to see it or whatever, and then you're kind of off the hook a little bit. Excuse me, I need a sip of water. But if you do realize that you did not offer it and they had, you know, they declined it, it's in your best interest to send it. Okay. Thanks, Merritt. One more for you. This is uh, close to home here. So as far as the notice of privacy practice flyers, we have them sign it, but we don't hand them a copy. In other words, they sign it and I guess the EMS crews retain it 
uh, but the patient or the patient's family does not get a copy. Is it a good pra best practice to make sure that they ha also have a copy? Here's what you have to be careful of, and this happened at a pharmacy here in the Pittsburgh region. They were having people sign that um, they were given the notice of privacy practices. Of course, I happened to be one of the patients, and I said, I can't sign this because you did not give me this document. And they're like, they looked at me like I had two heads. I'm like, well, seriously, then change this verbiage. So be sure that your verbiage says, I have been given it or seen it, and, and it doesn't say, um, it doesn't specifically say I gave you one. If you don't leave it with them, be sure that your sign off does not say that you did. Okay. Thank you very much. I think that answers the question. I'm sure they'll let me know if there's a follow-up. Okay, great. All right. So are your team members aware conversations need to be on a need-to-know basis? This is tied to the verbal risk. And they cannot share a patient's PHI once they head home to their families. I want to touch on the not sharing PHI. I've been in this industry a long time, so I have a lot of stories. And we had a an individual who used to go home and talk with his family member about things um, at the health insurance and um, patients and, re and um, members that he had helped. Well, lo and behold, they went through a divorce and it was not a very pretty divorce. And the soon-to-be ex-wife happened to call us in the privacy office and said, so-and-so has told me a whole bunch of information about a whole bunch of people, excuse me, and proceeded to give us a lot of details. And it was very unfortunate because that person lost his job. So be sure, I realize people go home and they want to de-stress and, you know, they want to let things off their chest, but they really need to be careful that they're not providing specific information that can be traced back to a patient. And then talking in confidential settings, if they are available versus open public areas. I, again, I think sometimes because we're in the heat of the moment and rendering the information, just kind of be aware. If there is a more confidential area, go to that area to have that conversation. Verbally releasing is to someone not entitled is just as serious. And this ties back to that $1.44 million situation with the pharmacy. What's the big deal if you don't comply? Here's all the terrible things that can happen. And as we mentioned before, they changed the law. The individual employee, not only the company, can face jail time. And this might be the scariest part that little gold box, they can assess up to $1.5 million for every HIPAA violation, for every calendar year out of compliance. <laughs> and um, the one example shown here, just like in the Ben Roethlisberger case, several hospital employees went into VIP records and they were fined, the hospital was fined $865,000. These are scary numbers, but this is the reality. Non-compliance within the law itself, they have to find four different tiers with four different penalty levels. And you can see as you go up, 
the severity level goes up, the fines go up. So it really can be um, very expensive if you have a HIPAA penalty. So again, per violation, you see the little stars, but that $1.5 million is for every calendar year out of compliance. If you do any kind of research, you will see that some organizations have fines 3.5, 4.5, and up million dollars in fines because they were out of compliance for multiple years. Here are some recent enforcement actions. I tried to pick examples from paper, verbal, um, and the next slide will show you electronic. Do you see the one in the middle for $2.4 million? Provide a verbally released information about a person, used a fake ID to get coverage. The provider was so happy that their control process worked and that they caught this before the fraud occurred, that they lost sight of, they could not release information and it, they did. They actually used the information about the two people in their um, news story. They had a big media release about it. And then they also published it in the paper. And what was so bad about this situation, again, they, they were proud of themselves. But what happened is the, um, the paper press release and the verbiage went all the way up through the chain of command at that company. And no one raised a red flag hey, I don't think we can do this. I think this is a HIPAA violation. And um, because of that, they were fined $2.4 million. So yeah, they saved it by not having a fraudulent claim, <laughs> but they spent a lot more because they violated the HIPAA rules. The last one is the one we've already talked about, the love triangle. And then on this last page, you see electronic, that first item, that is still pending, but I think it's a really important message about using Snapchat, using any type of social media, that if you do that and there is information about a patient or a resident and that information gets released, you are on the hook for a really big fine. And you see the one in the middle is the one that Gary alluded to at the very beginning of our presentation, that an ambulance provider lost a laptop now, when you look at that $65,000 fine, I'm sure that was a big fine for them. But when you look at the other fines, you will see that they really cut them a break. In my oh, opinion, they, they could have really gone after them for a lot more. And then the last one is really, if you do have a breach and you, you don't report it to HHS, there's an obligation. If, if it's a breach where there is harm that occurs, where there's reasonable suspicion, that there is harm, you have an obligation to report it. And they also did not have that business associate agreement in place when we talked about being sure that both companies have signed that important document. So $2.2 million for those violations. So any questions now? Yes, one question, Mayor. This comes to us from Ohio. Welcome. So the question is, is there such a thing as a random audit uh, uh, I guess at the, you know, they come to the ambulance service. I'm, I'm trying to make sense of the question. It's a little challenged here. Um, but, it, and if so, who does it and what are they coming looking for? 
Sure. Um, they can come in and audit really for any reason. You could have a health insurer come in <clears throat> because they want to do some audits, but let's say it's, it's tied to HIPAA. If Health and Human Services and the Office of Inspector General, those are the two that really oversee HIPAA, so it's HHS and OIG, they can decide at any time. Maybe they see um, different complaints that they're getting or they see a pattern. They can come in and start asking you for documents and asking questions. And what happens is that the more that they find that maybe you can't answer that satisfactor satisfactorily, they are able to continue to ask more and more and more. Did you do a risk assessment? What are your results? Where's your compliance plan? What kind of education do you do around HIPAA? Do your employees have to um, reset their passwords? So they'll just go down the list. And the minute that they start finding areas that maybe you're not as comfortable with or your employees aren't as comfortable with, they just stay a little bit longer and ask you more questions. So, um, and again, they can assess fines and penalties based on what they find. Anything else? That was it for the moment. Um, so if you remember at the very beginning, I talked about every two seconds, someone's a new victim. And if it took us 30 minutes, that's 900 new victims. Well, it took us longer than 30 minutes. So imagine how many people were affected by ID theft during this course. It's pretty staggering, it's pretty frightening. So, we really appreciate you spending part of your day with us. We hope there was something new or something helpful that you'll take away from this. And you know, as more questions come up, you can circle them back to Gary and he'll get them to me, but that's also my contact information. If there's anything I can ever help you with, I'll do my best. Well, thank you, Mary. It was a pleasure. It was a great and informative uh, uh, program. I appreciate you taking time from your day to do it, as well as all 84 of you that attended today. Thank you. I appreciate that, and we hope that uh, you'll come back again. Uh, please understand we have recorded this session. Uh, we'll be uploading it uh, in a few days. Takes takes us a couple days here to our podcast channel. If you search on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio for EMS Board and Caller, all our 117 different episodes will come up. Please feel free to take part. This one will be on there as well, too, in a few days. Uh, there's great information on there. And, of course, all our webinars, uh, you can find a full listing, and we update that regularly at quickmedclaims.com backslash education. So, and if you do need to write us, uh, feel free to do so by contacting us at clientservices at quickmedclaims.com. We'll be happy to pass your question along to Mary and get back to you, back to you excuse me, with a response. So with that, I will say thank you to all of you for again attending. Have a great day and hey, be safe out there. Hey.